different ways. But let's come to God's Word, and we're reading from Paul's letter to the Corinthians this morning. Um, I started last week just looking at the first part of, of this letter, the first few verses, and I want to pick up um, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, reading from verse 10. Let's hear the Word of the Lord spoken through the Apostle to the church in Corinth. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of the Lord Jesus, that you all agree with one another in what you say, and there be no division among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this, one of you says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, and another, I follow Cephas, and still another, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized into the name of Paul? I, I thank God that I did not baptize any of you except uh, Crispus and Gaius, so that no one can say you were baptized in my name. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanas. Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of the world, through its wisdom, did not know Him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs, and, and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and, and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before Him. It is because of Him that you're in Christ Jesus, who has become for us the wisdom of God, that is, our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Amen. And thanks be to God for His Word. Let's pray. Father, as we come this morning to, to read Your Word, 
as we come this morning to meditate on its truth for us, on the power and the weakness of the cross. We ask that this would speak to our hearts, encourage us, and bring us back to all that you've done for us in Christ Jesus. Amen. Corinth was a new town. It was only about 90 years old when Paul had visited it. Now, that might not seem that new, but then Rome was over 500 years old by this stage, and Athens, just to the north of Corinth, well, it was at least a thousand years old. So, Corinth was the new kid on the block, sort of the East Bride of the ancient world. Not that there's anything wrong with East Bride. I've met one or two nice people from there, just one or two. But anyway, Corinth was, was like a new town in, in the sense that it was a town on the make because, because it had been refounded by Julius Caesar just, just in 44 BC, which was still not in living memory, but certainly people would have had grandparents who were, who were around when it had been founded. It didn't have an old hereditary elite of senators like you would find in Rome. And it didn't have the ancient intellectuals of the university that you would have found in Athens that had been there since way back in Homer's day. It was a new town, and it had been settled 90 years before by ex-soldiers and traders who had gathered there, and even freed slaves, people at the bottom of the heap in the ancient world. And so, although there was plenty of poverty in Corinth, there was also a sense which you didn't get in other Roman cities that you could move up. You could be somebody. Some of the folk running the city probably had only one or two generations that there had been no wealth at all within them. There was a sense of this being a boom town. And there was a lot of confidence in the people of Corinth. They had indeed set up their own international games, the Isthmus Games, which rivaled the Olympics. They were wanting to put themselves on the map. There were wealthy people who had displays of wealth. One of the things you went, if you went down into the forum of most Roman cities, you would find is, whereas today we would go down and think the council built that, and the council built that, and they put the, the baths up and all the, the amenities up. In those days, they were put up by wealthy folk, and they would have plaques on the walls and everything else that showed you who was who in that city of Corinth. There was also a sense that its people were Roman citizens because it had been founded by an emperor, and therefore they were part of the most powerful empire in the world. With all the arrogance that we might have had as Brits when our empire was from one son to the other son and ruled the world. In fact, in Corinth, and it just shows you a little bit about the ostentation display of wealth, this was found in the ruins of Corinth. And in case your Latin's not up to scratch, I'll tell you what it says. It says, Erastus, in return for his city appointment, laid this pavement at his own expense. Now, this is interesting because the archaeologists have dated this from 50 AD, which is just about the time that Paul was in Corinth. And when you turn to the book of Romans which Paul writes later from Corinth, Paul writes this, Erastus, who is the city's director of public works, and our brother Quartus send you their greetings. And so, it is probable 
that the Erastus mentioned in the New Testament's part of the church was also a city official rich enough to lay a pavement. Now, what does this tell us? It tells us that we are part of a culture, and the church is planted into a culture where people are wanting to show they're strong, and they're rich, and they're powerful, and they're on the move, and they're getting on in the world. It's a real place for all of that going on. A place of competition, perhaps, a place of strength. And in fact, all around the city would have been temples to gods, big strong gods who had defeated giants and done all sorts of things and all the myths of old. And what you wanted to do was to give your offerings to these gods to get them on side so they would bless your business and bless your concerns and look after your family so you would be strong and wealthy and all the rest of it as well. And it is in the midst of that culture that Paul plants a church. And for 18 months, he works with that church as he's making little leather things, acting just as a tradesman, and then he leaves it. Two years pass, and we are told that he gets a communique from Chloe's people. And what Chloe's people tell him is that the church has become bitterly divided. It's very successful. It's growing. There's more and more people going but it's bitterly, bitterly divided. What seems to have been happening is this. A few months after Paul had left, there was another chap turned up, and his name was Apollos. And Apollos was a preacher as well, and he preached Christ the same way Paul did. But Apollos, well, Apollos was a superb preacher. Apollos was an eloquent preacher. Apollos had probably studied at the university, and he knew all the latest rhetorical ways to preach and to teach. He was polished, and the Corinthians were really impressed. They thought this was the real guy. And some of them began to say, and I'm, I'm, I'm sort of speculating a little bit from what we're told here, you know, some of them maybe began to say, I, I'm, I'm a real Apollos man. He's the guy. He's the guy I follow. He's the guy I've learned from. He's fantastic. He's so much better than Paul. Because Paul, we know from other places in the New Testament, wasn't a great public speaker. He had a bit of a stutter. Uh, and and he, 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 his presence, his physical presence wasn't up to much. And so we can see some of them saying, well, you know, I, I'm an Apollos man. And some of them are maybe saying, well, actually, Paul founded this town, this, this church. Paul's the real founder. I'm a Paul man. And they begin to have a bit of an argument about that. And then somebody else mentions Cephas. Now, Cephas is, 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 is an Aramaic form of the word Peter. So, you can imagine some of them say, well, some of you like Paul and some of you like Apollos, but you know, Peter's the one that really founded the church. He's the rock that Jesus spoke about. So, I, I want to say I, I really follow Peter's teaching. And then we have somebody saying, ah, well, I follow Christ. I follow Christ. And you know how you get Christians that sometimes do that when you're, you're debating things. They say, well, I just do it the Jesus way. You do it your way. That's fine. And it's that sense of competition, of elitism, of moving on up that is going on here. You know, sometimes, and I, I mentioned this last week, Christians, when they're finding the church today really difficult, the divisions, the problems with the Church of Scotland, or they're falling out with this or falling out with that, they say, why can't we be a biblical church? I always want to say, what do you mean like the one in Corinth? That fought about sex and fought about sacraments and fought about how they paid their ministers and fell out about this and fell out about that and fell out about that. You want to be a biblical church? The church from the beginning was always one 
riddled with human problems. Because so often, even in churches, we fight not necessarily about big theological things. Sometimes we do fall out about that. But so often it's, I want it my way, isn't it? I think it should be done this way. I want it to be more modern. I want it to be more traditional. I want it to be this way. I want it to be that way. I don't feel valued. I don't feel listened to. I don't feel that it's, and it's all about me. My strength, my needs, my understanding. And Paul says to the Corinthian church, Jesus died for you. Let's start there. And what Paul does in this passage, and he will do this right through the whole of the letter, is he points them back to the cross. That's why you're there. That's the reason that you're Christians, because of what Jesus did on the cross. And you know what? Very often when we get into discussions and arguments and heated debates, that's what we need to do as Christians. We need to take our eyes off the small issues we're looking at and look back to the cross. Look back to what unites us, but also look back to what God had done. God changed the world in the cross. He changed the way that we look at things. He changed the things that are important. He changed from a place of competition and trying to get up on top and get things my way to see that the God of the whole universe sacrificed Himself in weakness and in shame. And that is the power of the cross. You know, the Corinthians had learned, perhaps from Apollos, but certainly from their background in their Athens down the road, that intellectual prowess and eloquence and sophistication were what was mattered. And Paul said, forget all of that and think about the cross. Because whatever the cross was, and we get when we think about it, that it's not just a, a jewelry symbol. It's a symbol of pain, of death, but it's also a symbol of shame. The cross said that you are an outsider in the Roman elite, that you are nothing, that you are a barbarian or a slave, that you are nothing. And we, we forget sometimes how strikingly ridiculous this was in the midst of a Roman world to start to say that a peasant from Galilee who owned nothing, who built nothing, who won no battles, who had no followers at the end of his life, who was executed as a common criminal, is the God of the whole world. That's bonkers. That's nuts. The Romans knew what strength was. They knew what they worshipped as gods. They were beginning to worship by this stage the emperors as gods. But what had the emperors done? They'd won wars, built cities, brought peace and prosperity, had roads that streamed the whole world, had bathhouses, had changed everything, gave commands from the center, and they happened. That's what strength was. That's what power was. That's what victory looked like. That's what a god looked like. And here they came and were invited to worship Christ crucified, a dead Field, Galilean peasant, executed criminal from a despised race. Madness. And to Jews, complete madness. The Messiah was supposed to beat the Romans, beat the pagans, change the world, not be killed by them. Absurd. But this is the plan of God. This is the sign of God that the world has changed forever, ever. You know, we sometimes 
think what the church needs is a fantastic plan, a brilliant building, a wonderful preacher, lots of young folk with new ideas or, or, or whatever else it is, but that was not God's way. He sent His Son to the bottom of the heap to die on a cross. We preach Christ crucified, says Paul, and this is the wisdom that changes everything. Now, just a few points about the cross, because the cross then and now is an offense to the world. We uh, had that big cross up over there a few weeks ago, and I got told to move it. Quite rightly, it was a health and safety issue. There were some folk banging their heads on it. And my previous congregation, we had a cross like that, uh, and it stood up at the front of the church, only it didn't have the big solid safe stand that Colin made for that one. It had a wee flimsy stand, and every time the kids started running around, there was a risk it fall on the congregation's look and say, that cross is going to hit somebody. But you know what? The cross isn't safe. Pick up your cross and follow me, said Jesus. He didn't mean put on a little gold chain and it'll be fine. He meant this was going to be offensive to the world, what I have done, because I have turned everything around. The world values strength and success and power and the influence to shape things, and the cross says none of that matters. And it's offensive to people because our, our, our religious instincts say, well, surely I'm good enough. If God just helps me a little bit, I'll achieve enough. And the cross says, no, you, you cannot be good enough. It's going to take my son to die to save you. That's how broken you are. And for many people, that's insulting. That's humiliating. That's offensive. And the story of the cross confounds our ideas of success. You know, I've spoken about the Roman world being a, a world that valued power and empires and all the rest of it. Our world today is no different. Who are the people we spend our whole time reading about, watching on television, following the ins and outs of their life? Because I'll say it, it's, it's not the little guy down the street or the folk at the food bank, is it? It's the celebrity. It's the success story. It's the powerful. It's the princes. It's these people that we look up and we emulate. And if we are honest in our own jealousy, we'd quite like to be a bit like that. Maybe not live in the palace, but we wouldn't mind living in a house that had 12 rooms, even if not 106. We wouldn't mind having a few servants, even if not half a million. We emulate and we want that success. There's very few people in the world that wouldn't like a promotion. Maybe they want to run the place, but they would like to get up a wee bit to do a bit better, because that is what we value in our culture. But here comes the cross that says God values what nobody values. If I preach for too long, we will have a problem this morning, because there's a football match And next door, there's a pub. And folk from Cross Hill may not be aware of this, but we regularly get interrupted when certain teams are doing quite well. They shouldn't play 
football matches on Sunday morning. Would you agree? Why? But let me tell you why. Because we think the church should be recognized, respected, strong, influential, so that people would move out of the way for the church. They wouldn't distract people. They wouldn't put their things on on a Sunday morning because we're important and we matter and the world should be shaped around us. What do we want? A big, strong, powerful church that has influence and wealth and wonderful buildings full of people that really can, when the Church of Scotland speaks, people should listen. The schools should be teaching what we think they should be teaching and should be, you see what we want? A powerful church. Lots of influence. But we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block. An offense. A minority sport. Why don't we have them paying attention to what we're doing on a Sunday morning? The answer is because about 2% of the population go to church. And 98% don't. And I wonder sometimes that God is teaching us something. I didn't come with political power and social influence. Why do you want it? To serve me? God chose what is weak. And Paul went on to say, you know, consider your own story. Sorry, I've missed these slides. I always do this. Not many of you were wise by human standards, not many were influential, not many were of noble birth, but God chose the foolish things to shape the wise. This is not a good way to warm your audience up, by the way, Paul. Not many of you count for anything. Most of you are nobodies. That's how he says it. Most of you are nobodies. Most of you were born at the bottom of the heap. Most of you have got no real intellect. Most of you have got no real power. Most of you are not really successes. Maybe Erastus is sitting there saying, well, I'm not. But probably most of the church are. They're at the bottom of the heap. They're slaves, they're poor, and all the rest of it. What's Paul saying? God's chosen nobodies. God's chosen guys with stutters to preach the gospel. That's what Paul was. Think about that. Because it's in that weakness that the gospel comes. So that when we boast, we don't boast in ourselves but we boast in the Lord. Jesus has done this for me. And the strength of the church is the wonder of the God who has changed the world by giving His Son. It's not about anything else. And it's why the church ought to, as it did in the beginning, speak out of its weakness. And often to those who are also weak and poor and marginalized about the God that comes in weakness to pour out His life for us and says to us that it is only as we humble ourselves and accept what He has done that we will have strength and power and salvation. And as we come to the table just now, that is what we are invited to do, to remember the Lord as he came that night and ate the last meal of a condemned man before he gave his life and calls us to eat it too.
accepting what He has done for us, rejoicing in the fact that He has called us as we are and transformed us in Jesus, and that He's changing the world. And by the way, this weakness that God came in was the power that changed the world. The gods of Corinth in all their strength are forgotten. The emperors consigned to the history books, but the cross still stands. Amen.